For friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and reading again at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. When I was uh, training for the ministry, I was privileged to do a number of placements in Helmsdale Free Church in the North Coast under the mentoring of Kenny McLeod, who was minister in Thurso. I was allowed to stay in the manse over the summer and allowed to preach, allowed to visit and allowed to help in all the different holiday clubs. It was a great experience. It was an invaluable experience. And there was a man in the Helmsdale congregation named James, a man who had a real fire in his heart when it came to the Lord and when it came to the Lord's cause. And the windows in the room that the congregation would meet in for their prayer meeting would quite literally steam up when James was put up to pray. He was so passionate, he was so burdened about the Lord's cause that I'd never been in a prayer meeting and I, I sometimes wonder if I'll ever be in a prayer meeting quite like it, that here was this man just imploring the Lord to seek conversions in that village and you've got the windows steaming up I'll never forget having lunch with James one Sunday afternoon and he was talking about the spiritual condition of Helmsdale Brora whole north coast and he kept repeating when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You see, what was playing on James's mind is, if Jesus were to come back, would he find Christians? Would he find faith in the North Coast? Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series on stories that Jesus told, and we're looking at the parable of the persistent widow. The parable of the persistent widow. And we're going to look at the passage under two headings a curious tale and then a clear teaching. First, a curious tale, verses 1 down to 5, where Luke focuses on the story that Jesus tells. Verse 1, Luke presents us with the setting. We can begin by noting where Jesus was. Now, Luke isn't, doesn't explicitly say, where Jesus was, but we do know that he is on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross where he will lay down his life as a sacrifice for the salvation of his people. And he's just spoken to his disciples, to his followers, about his second coming, his future return. We can also know what Jesus does. He presents his disciples with a parable, a story with important spiritual lessons, And we can know why Jesus does this. The purpose of this particular parable, Luke writes, was to encourage the disciples to always pray. Now that doesn't refer to continuous prayer, where a disciple will pray every second of every day. Rather, it refers to consistent prayer, where prayer is the way of life for the disciple, the follower of Jesus. And furthermore, the purpose of this parable, Luke writes, was to encourage the disciples not to lose heart when it came to prayer. 
Jesus knows that it's possible and it's probable that his disciples might lose heart as they went about the business of praying. And so he tells them this story and the purpose of the story is just to spur them on, just to encourage them on as they prayed. And having provided this setting, Luke records the story in verses 2 down to 5. Jesus starts by describing the request, verses 2 and 3. He speaks about a judge. The Romans permitted notable Jewish men to oversee legal affairs in first century Palestine. The Romans preferred not to get involved in Jewish civil cases unless it required capital punishment, unless it required the death penalty. And Jesus says that this judge was based in a certain city. What Jesus is saying is, this is no country bumpkin judge. This is a man who's in a powerful position, in a place of great influence. He was based in a city. And Jesus says that this judge neither feared God nor respected man. He has no reverence for God, no regard for men or women. He is an independent man who is not going to be impressed by or influenced by God or anyone else. And then Jesus speaks about a widow. She might have been a relatively young woman since many young teenage girls tended to get married at this time. And they quite often would get married to slightly older men. And as a widow, she finds herself in an extremely vulnerable position. She has no man to provide for her, no man to speak up for her, no man to defend her. Now you and I might be saying today, that's not an issue. Some of you women might be saying, no offence intended, I am a strong independent woman and I don't need a husband for anything. You might even be saying, my husband isn't much good for anything. But remember, this was a male-dominated society where women didn't have a voice. So this woman is in an extremely vulnerable position. She is in a helpless, hopeless condition. And Jesus goes on to speak about her request. We read that she kept on coming to the judge. She was relentless in approaching him. She went to him day after day, week after week, month after month, and possibly year after year. And she kept pleading the same thing. Give me justice against my adversary. This woman has been wronged by someone. And she is asking the judge to give her justice. She is saying to the judge, I want you to vindicate me. And I don't just want you to vindicate me. I also want you to take vengeance on this person who is doing me so much wrong. And she's not willing to take no for an answer as she keeps coming. We move from the request to the response, verses 4 and 5. The judge initially refuses her request. We've already seen that he didn't fear God. So he gives no thought to God's law that spoke about the protection of the widow, the protection of the orphan, the protection of the foreigner. And we've also noted that he didn't simply have no regard for God, he also had no regard for man. Didn't care what this woman thought or said about his treatment of her, and didn't care about what other people thought or said about his treatment of her. All he cares about is his own comfort, his own convenience, and so he's content to simply brush the woman off. He is an ungracious man, an ungodly man, an unbelieving man, an unloving man, an unmerciful man. 
But eventually he relents. He speaks to himself. He engages in an inner monologue. Isn't it interesting? We've gone through these stories that Jesus is telling. And how many of them have a character who speaks to himself, thinks to himself? And as he speaks to himself, he affirms that he doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man. In other words, he is saying the reputation that I have got is quite true. I am not a man who fears God. I am not a man who respects other people. And at the same time, he resolves to give justice to this woman. And his reason for doing so, he says, is because she keeps on bothering him. And he is now fearful that she is going to wear him down, grind him down with her repeated coming. The judge relents and resolves to do something for this widow, not because it's the right thing to do, not because he's a kindly figure who has a pang of conscience. Rather, he resolves to do the right thing because he sees this woman as a burdensome, bothersome nuisance. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the awareness that Jesus has. The awareness that Jesus has. That's what we see in Luke 18. Jesus tells his disciples a parable, a story. And the purpose of the parable is to encourage them to pray and not to lose heart. Jesus is aware that it's more than possible for his disciples to become despondent, discouraged, disheartened, disillusioned, deflated when it comes to prayer. And that's important for us to reflect on. I was recently reading an autobiography of Jeff Thomas. Uh, Jeff Thomas is a retired minister from Wales. We had him at our communion back in uh, 2017. And in the book, it's a wonderful book, in the book he laments how he often struggled to maintain a vibrant prayer life, even as a minister. And in fact, in the book, Challenge for Natalie, in the book, he says that he relied on his wife to pray because he was so poor at praying himself. And I'm sure many of us could add our own amen to this. Many of us can probably look back at our lives and we can remember how when we were first converted, we had a vibrant prayer life. We had an active prayer life. Some of you went to the Tuesday prayer meeting, the Thursday prayer meeting, the the Saturday prayer meeting. And you maybe didn't even have garlic, but you thought, I'll go to the garlic prayer meeting anyway. I love the prayer meeting. I love the place of prayer. I love to pray. And when you weren't at a prayer meeting, you were praying in your homes. And then the years went on. And you found yourself maybe losing heart when it came to prayer. Perhaps we've been praying for healing for someone. And their condition worsened. Perhaps we found ourselves praying that God would provide. And yet he didn't seem to provide. Or didn't change our circumstance. Perhaps we've been praying for a loved one. That they would be converted and they're just hardening to the gospel. Maybe you're remembering today how you had a husband, you had a wife who used to come out to services with you. And now you try to get them to come and it's like dragging out teeth. They don't want to come. Perhaps you've been praying for a spouse. You want to be married. And it's not happened. We find ourselves praying and praying and praying and yet God doesn't seem to answer and we become discouraged. We lose heart. 
Perhaps you're here today and you would never say this, but you might be thinking it, you might be feeling it. What's the point in praying? What's the point? And at this stage, I simply want to say that Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He's the saviour who knows how his people feel. He knows what's on their minds. He knows what's on their hearts. And he knows that his people can often find prayer to be a real struggle. He knows that his people can find themselves on the verge of giving up when it comes to prayer. On the brink of giving up when it comes to prayer. That is the kind of saviour that Jesus is. He knows that for many of his people, maintaining an active, vibrant prayer life can be a huge challenge. So this morning, we are being confronted with the very comforting truth that Jesus is aware of the difficulties that his people have when it comes to prayer. And and I don't know about you, but I love that. I love the fact that if I were to go up to Jesus today and say, I am really struggling with prayer... He is not going to say, I am so shocked to hear this. I can't believe what my ears are hearing. I've never met anybody like you before. What kind of Christian are you? No, he'll say, I know. I know. I know you're finding it hard. I know my people find it hard. I know my people become disheartened when it comes to prayer. So there you've got a curious tale. And then you've got a clear teaching, verses 6 to 8. Where Luke focuses now on the application that Jesus presents. Verses 6 down to 8, Jesus makes a firm pronouncement. He begins by calling on his disciples to pay attention. Look at verse 6. He looks all those who are listening to him in the eye and he says to them, hear what the unjust judge says. He's saying, let's think about the meaning of this story. Let's think about what this very strange man, this unjust judge, has to teach us. And Jesus continues by asking two rhetorical questions. Look at verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect, his loved and chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will God delay long over them? Jesus is comparing the judge with God. And the widow with the believer. And what Jesus is doing is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater as he is effectively saying to his disciples. If this unrighteous judge gave justice to a widow who kept coming to him. Can you not expect God, the righteous judge of all the earth... To give justice to his chosen and loved people. Do you see the argument? If this unrighteous judge gave justice to a widow who kept coming to him. Can you not expect God, the righteous judge of all the earth. To give justice to his chosen people. His loved people. His redeemed people. His covenant people. Now the expected answer to these questions ought to be an emphatic and resounding yes. And just in case there is any doubt about the correct answer. Jesus provides it there in verse 8. He employs the phrase I tell you. 
He's emphasizing that he has something that's very serious, very solemn, very significant to say. He's emphasizing that he wants his disciples to listen and to take on board what he is saying to them. And he says that God will give justice to them. He will vindicate all his people who are experiencing oppression from others. And he will take vengeance on those who are oppressing them. And Jesus says that God will give them justice speedily. He's not going to delay unnecessarily. He will act as soon as the time is right. Not one minute later. Not one second later. And having made that firm pronouncement. Jesus asks one final question at the end of verse 8. Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man. This title Son of Man is used 24 times in Luke's Gospel. Jesus' favourite self-designation. It's really based on words that we find in Daniel chapter 7 where we read these words. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. And so when Jesus is saying here that he is the son of man, he is declaring himself to be that end time figure. The one who will usher in the kingdom of God at the end of time. And not just usher in the kingdom of God at the end of time. But will also reign over the kingdom of God at the end of time. Jesus is saying that is who I am. Now he's already spoken about his coming as the son of man in the previous chapter. Luke 17. And he said that that coming would be clear. In fact, he said it would be as clear as a a flash of lightning. No one would be blissfully unaware when he comes. And he said that this coming would be catastrophic for many. It would be like the days of Noah, where people were just getting on with their lives and were just swept away by a flood. It would be like the days of Lot, where people were getting on with their lives and were suddenly destroyed by fire. And it's at this point that Jesus asks the final probing question. Will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man comes, when I come at the end of time, will I find a people who have a real faith, a living faith, an active faith? He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, when I come at the end of time, will I find a people whose faith is seen in persistent persevering, crying out to God in prayer, night and day. Now he asks the question. And the answer is left open for the reader to think about. Now as we consider these verses, friends, we can see the assurance that Jesus gives. We've seen the awareness that he has. We now see the assurance that he gives. That's what we see in Luke 18. Jesus speaks about God's chosen and loved people crying out to him day and night. Here are people who find themselves in a situation that is difficult, a situation that is intolerable, and they're crying out to God. And Jesus says that God will give them justice. He will vindicate them and he will execute vengeance on those who are oppressing them. That is the assurance that Jesus gives. 
And that is important for us to reflect on. No Christian has it easy. There's opposition to the cause of Christ even in the UK, even in Scotland, even in Lewis. We heard that from Nigel Kenny on Tuesday night. But some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world have it far harder than we do at present. Phil Riken writes, According to some estimates, more than 200 million Christians face intimidation, discrimination and imprisonment every year. House churches in China are under government observation. Christians in Sudan face genocidal violence from militant Muslims. Citizens in Saudi Arabia are not allowed to convert to faith in Jesus Christ. Pastors in Vietnam meet in secret to receive their theological training. Militant Buddhists in Sri Lanka close down churches and threaten believers with violence. Christians in Eritrea are jailed in record numbers. Hindus in in India deny low-caste Christians basic human rights. These are only some of the ways and some of the places that Christians suffer injustice. Dale Ralph Davis is slightly more explicit when he speaks about such persecution. He writes, In Lahore, Pakistan, Amir Masih, a gardener and a Christian, went to a police station. There had been a minor theft at his employer's home and Amir went voluntarily to the police station to give a statement that would clear his name. But Amir died as a result of torture inflicted by the police. They tried to force a confession from him for an offence he didn't commit. Amir's brother said that police urinated on Amir while cursing him for being a Christian. Or there's Suzanne de Kerker, age 60, a Syrian Christian and retired school teacher who had remained in that now largely desolated land and in her village for the sake of her pupils. But one day Islamic militants took her raped her repeatedly, tortured and stoned her to death. That's bad, but listen to this. Post-mortem examination indicated that her ordeal had gone on for about nine hours. What do we say in the face of such horror? When you're hearing about Christians enduring such persecution. What do you say in the face of such horror? What do you say in the face of such hostility? What do you say in the face of such hatred? What hope is there? The hope that a day is coming when God will vindicate his people and take vengeance on those who are oppressing them. That's the assurance that Jesus gives to every bruised and beleaguered believer in October 2023. Now, we might be saying, well, I want Jesus to delay his return. I I like my life in Lewis. I like my life in Stornoway. And I'm hoping to get a new car next month. And I'm hoping to get married in a few years. And I'm hoping to get a good high-flying job. And I'm hoping to get a nice holiday abroad next year. And I've got all these nice things. Do you think a Christian in Pakistan... Syria could say such things. Well, no, they, they just want the Lord to come and execute justice. And Jesus gives them that assurance. 
But we also, as we consider these verses, don't simply see the awareness that Jesus has and the assurance that Jesus gives, but also the allegiance that Jesus seeks. That's what we see in Luke 18. Jesus speaks about his future return as the Son of Man, and he asks whether or not he will find faith on earth when he comes. And in this context, such faith is seen in persistent, persevering prayer. This is the allegiance that Jesus is seeking, the kind of commitment that doesn't give up, the kind of commitment that keeps on crying out to God day and night. And that is important for us to reflect on. When I was in school, I was in a computing class, and it was a slightly unruly class, and our computing teacher left us one day because he had to go to another meeting. And he said, boys, I'm going to leave you with some work to do. I'll be back. But he didn't tell us when. When he returned, he found this group of unruly teenage boys racing the swivel chairs up and down the corridor. And one of the boys had got it into his head, let's not race the swivel chairs up and down the corridor. Let's race them down the stairs. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Now, Jesus has made it clear that he is coming back. And he's coming back as the Son of Man. And he's not told us when. He simply said, I am coming back. And when he comes, he will be looking for faith in the lives of those professing to be his people. And the kind of faith that he is looking for is the faith that persists and perseveres. The kind of faith that doesn't give up. The kind of faith that will cry out to God day and night for justice. And so the question that I simply want to close with is, if Jesus were to come back later today, or if Jesus were to come back later this week, would he find you, not the person sitting beside you, not the person sitting behind you, not the person sitting in front of you, would he find you to be a man or woman who exhibits such faith? It's guaranteed that Jesus is going to find faith when he returns. He has said that he will always have his people. You remember what he says in Matthew's gospel. He says, I am building my church in the gates of hell. The gates of Syria, the gates of Saudi Arabia, the gates of Laos, the gates of North Korea. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But will he find faith in your home? Will he find faith in your heart? Will Jesus be able to identify you? Not your friend, not your neighbour, not your spouse, not your colleague. Will he be able to identify you as one of his elect people, one of his chosen and loved people? Put it this way. If Jesus were to come back, Would he find you engaged in that persistent, persevering prayer and be able to say, they're definitely one of mine? Or would he come back and find you engaged in something or maybe not engaged in something and have to say, I'm not sure if they're mine. I've not seen it in their lives. not seen it in what they're doing right now. If Jesus were to come back later today, later this week, would he be able to identify you as one of his chosen people?
Let's pray.